Okay, so we are talking in, a, we're in this series on tough questions. We've dealt with a lot of tough ones. Uh, here in the fall, we've been dealing with questions that uh, unbelievers tend to ask. Uh, as we transition next time, we're going to start getting into specific scriptures that Christians struggle with. But today is the last one of these that uh, skeptics will throw at us. And, and we're looking at why don't Christians follow all the Bible's rules? So uh, back in 2007, a journalist and author A.J. Jacobs wrote a book called The Year of Living Biblically. He was not a religious man. He described himself as a secular Jew. And actually, the way he described himself, he said, I, I'm Jewish the same way Olive Garden is an Italian restaurant, which I thought was pretty clever. Uh, but uh, he, he, he decided for a year he was going to try to See what it was like to live up to all the Bible's commands literally, to take all of them literally and to live them out uh, and see what happened. And he wrote a book about his experience. So he let his beard grow out long and shaggy because Leviticus says that you don't trim the edges or the corners of your beard. Uh, he would go out at the beginning of every month and blow a shofar, a ram's horn, outside. I'm sure his neighbors loved that. Um, he tithed 10%. He even stoned an adulterer. Of course, the stones he used were little pebbles. And the guy he was throwing those pebbles at was over 70, and he almost beat him up. Um, but it was an experience, and the book that he wrote became a bestseller. And in fact, they made a TV series out of it that only lasted 13 episodes, and I understand it was pretty terrible. But it does make you think, why don't we follow all the Bible's commands, literally? Why don't I have a long, shaggy beard right now? Why don't I have uh, fringes on the edges of all my garments? Why... Uh, why don't I have the law literally tied to my wrist and my forehead? Uh, why don't I sacrifice a bull on an altar every time I sin or whenever I want to give God thanks for his blessings? For that matter, why do I mow my yard on Saturdays when the Bible clearly says that we're to honor the Sabbath day, the seventh day of the week, and rest from all our labors? So this is the kind of question that I used to think about a little bit when I was growing up, but not too hard. I knew there were commands in the Bible about dietary rules, and if I had to give up shrimp and bacon, I really didn't want to know. So I didn't think about it too hard. But it really came to a head when I got to be an adult, and I began to interact with, with non-Christian people, especially online, and they would ask questions about, well, why do you follow this command in the Scripture but not that one? And they would say things like, you, you talk about what the Bible says about sexuality, and you, you accuse us of doing wrong, uh, but... You ignore what it says about other things. Like, you know, it says that if you have a rebellious son, you should take him out and have him stoned by the village elders. How come you Christians aren't, aren't uh, calling on us to do things like that? You're just, you're just picking and choosing the parts of the Bible that fit your agenda. And some would even go further and say, you know you can't live up to all the Bible because it's all ridiculous. You should just throw it all away. And so the question we have to ask is not, are they right? We've talked about the, the reliability of Scripture that's been... The last two sessions of these tough questions is why can we trust the Bible? How do we know that the Bible is true? But the question we need to ask is, are they right about us being inconsistent? Are we not true to the word we proclaim to believe? And if so, is God really angry with us for not following all these laws that we tend to ignore? Well, the answer begins by establishing what the Bible actually is, because a lot of people, including a lot of Christians, just think the Bible is a list of rules. It's a book of commands, and some people have called, some Christians have called it a, 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 an owner's manual for life. You know, 
know, this is how to live. But that's not really what it is. The Bible is the story of God's love for us, his people. The story of God's uh, effort, ultimately successful, will be ultimately successful to redeem the world he made that we corrupted. And so you have to read it in that way. You have to read it through the lens of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You have to read the whole Bible through the, through the knowledge that here's what Jesus came to do. Here's what God is trying to accomplish. And so, for instance, you look at the law of Moses. So in the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, it's dominated by this section where God makes a covenant with the people of Israel, his people, his chosen people. So Moses goes up on the mountain comes down with the tablets, and inscribed on that is the covenant between God and human beings. And this is how we are to get right with God. Here's how we are to have a relationship with Him. Here's how we are to know Him and follow His plan. And so on those, in the law of Moses, there are the Ten Commandments that we're so familiar with. There's instructions on what kinds of sacrifices to perform and how to perform those sacrifices. Very intricate rules on that. There's rules about what you should eat, what you should wear, uh, what days you should fast, uh, when you should come to Jerusalem for a festival, and what you should do at those festivals. Uh, there's even uh, rules about how you should spend your time on the seventh day of the week, and what you can touch and what you can't touch, and what you can say and what you can't say. There are some of those laws, and this year as we've read through the Bible together, I, I can't tell you how many people have come up to me and said, well, what's this law about? I've never heard that before. One that's repeated more than once in the law of Moses is, do not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Now, that, never, that was never actually a problem for me. I don't know why that's even there. And people say, well, what does this mean? So scholars will tell you the law of, in the Old Testament, the law of Moses, served three purposes. Number one, it's there to remind God's people that he is holy. You don't approach God the way you would approach your fishing buddy or your brother-in-law or even your boss. God is different. God is higher. You, you have to be right with him. You have, to, you have to have your life right to approach God. Uh, and that's why so many of the laws are about cleanliness or about purity. Have you been eating the right foods? Are you wearing the right clothes? Have you, have you performed this sacrifice in the right way according to the specifications have you touched anything that's dead? Have you been in contact with anyone who has one of these particular diseases? There are so many ways you can disqualify yourself from coming into the presence of the Lord according to the law. So those laws were there, and, and, and the people, when they would read those laws, or they would hear them spoken, they would remember, oh yes, our God is holy. He's not like anybody else. The second reason for the law is it was there to separate God's people from their pagan neighbors and the influence of those neighbors. The people of God were, were his chosen people. And you remember, the, the Israelites were the only ones in the world at that time who believed in one God who was an ethical God. It's called ethical monotheism. There were other peoples that believed in one God, but not one God that was good. See, when you, when you study the mythology of all those other people, you found most of them worshipped dozens of gods, maybe even hundreds. And all of them worship gods that were capricious, sometimes even evil. Uh, sometimes they seemed no more righteous than you and me. But the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, was good. He only did what was good. He only did what was right. And so these laws were there to remind the Israelites 
don't go messing with these other people's religions. Because that was very tempting. God knew that would be a temptation for them, uh, that they would see someone uh, sacrificing on a hillside, on a high place, and they'd think, well, you know, just to hedge my bets, why don't I, why don't I offer my offering in the tabernacle to Yahweh and then tomorrow go up on the hill on the high place and offer an offering to Baal or Asherah? Uh, you know, if I really, I really want to make sure something happens, maybe I'll sacrifice one of my children to Molech because, you know, this is important stuff. And some of the rituals of their neighbors seemed more fun than worshiping Yahweh. They got to do things that, that appealed to our baser instincts, our, our, our fleshly nature. And so God put these laws in there to say, you don't do those kinds of things. In fact, that law, don't boil a young goat in its mother's milk, a lot of scholars think that must have been a ritual in one of those pagan religions, and that's why they were commanded not to do it. And then the third purpose of the law was to prepare the way for something better. See, God had something else planned. It was all leading up to something. Now, that's hard to see in the Old Testament, although there are hints in the Old Testament of this. For instance, in 1 Samuel 15, 22, and this is when Samuel confronts King Saul. King Saul has just tried to, try to elicit God's or solicit God's favor on his army in a battle by sacrificing, but he didn't do it the right way. He didn't do it according to God's command. And so he, he's pleading before Samuel and saying, hey, listen, I sacrificed. And Samuel says, Do the Lord, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. And then a few hundred years later, Hosea the prophet said something similar. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. So he's saying, you can follow all the laws and requirements to the letter and still not be right with me. There's something more that's required. I don't want just your obedience. I don't want just your, your following the letter of the law. I want your heart. And then along came Jesus. And Jesus, everyone could tell there was something different about him. And one of the things that was different about him was the way he interacted with the law. Because everybody in that world either rejected the law of God and went, on, went their own way, and those were the sinners, or they tried their best to follow it, like the scribes and the Pharisees. But Jesus, Jesus had a different relationship with the law. On the one hand, in Matthew 5.19, he said, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So, he came along and he, he doubled down on the law of God. He didn't come along and say, well, let's just forget about the law of Moses. He said, no, it's going to stand forever. Don't you wipe this out. Don't you stop teaching this. This is truth. But on the other hand, in Mark 7, 19, he declared all food clean. So he took hundreds of years of tradition and all, this, all of his uh, ancestors for, for generation after generation had followed these dietary laws and he said, nope, that's over. Now you can eat whatever you want. Now you can eat whatever your uh, heart tells you to eat because food is not what it's all about. And he would go around doing shocking things. He would, he would touch a dead body. Of course, he'd raise it to life, but still, that made him unclean. He touched something that was dead. He touched uh, impure women, a sinful woman, or a woman who was, during her, who was in the time of her monthly uh, issue, or he would touch a leper and heal the leper, but that made him unclean as well. He just, I mean, godly people in those times would go to great lengths to avoid being made ritually unclean. Jesus didn't seem to care. And so people wondered about him. That, that, they didn't understand. And then in Matthew 5.17, he said something really shocking. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. 
I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. No other human being who's ever lived could say that and get away with it. I am the fulfillment of the law. All the law points to me. Well, what does that even mean? And you've actually got to read the book of Hebrews to find the answer. Now, I know a lot of Christians who would say the book of Hebrews, aside from Revelation, is the hardest book in the New Testament, and yet it's there for a reason. It's there to show us what the law of Moses points to, what the law of Moses was preparing the way for. How does Jesus fulfill the law? Hebrews tells us Jesus is our once and for all sacrifice. Never again needs to be a sacrifice for our sins. That's why we don't kill animals on an altar anymore because Jesus died for our sins once and for all time. Jesus is our Passover lamb. Jesus is our high priest. You know, as, as Baptists, as Protestants, as Evangelicals, you should know that you don't need to confess your sins to me unless you've sinned against me personally. You confess your sins straight to God. You don't come to me. I mean, if you come and ask me to pray for you, I will because I'm your friend. But you realize, of course, I hope you realize that my prayers are no more powerful than yours are because we're all priests in the Lord because Christ is our high priest and you have the same access to him that I do. And, and that little REV before my name doesn't give me any special ticket into the altar of God because the blood of Jesus is the same for you as it is for me. Jesus, according to uh, the book of Hebrews, uh, is the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament, including those, those tedious chapters that describe the building of the tabernacle. You're reading through that in Exodus and you're thinking, good grief. What is this all about? Why do I need to know what color the curtain was and, and how many candlesticks there were and, and, and what, what the, the table was made out? What, what is this all about? And then Hebrews comes along and says, yeah, that's all about Jesus. That points to elements of his character. In fact, think about what happened at the very moment Jesus died. According to all four Gospels, the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And that was God's invisible hand saying there's no more barrier." Up till now, you could only come so far or the glory of God would be too much for you. But now, as Hebrews says, we can boldly approach the throne. Think about this. This, this is just boggles your mind when you think about it. According to Hebrews, we are able to do things that nobody in the Old Testament was able to do. Even the godliest man or woman of the Old Testament couldn't do what we can do, which is just walk into the presence of God day or night. As Tim Keller says, uh, if... What kind of person wakes a king up at three in the morning to ask him for a drink of water? Well, only his child can do that. Well, that's what we are. We can petition God at three in the morning with no preparation whatsoever because we're his children, because Jesus has brought us into his throne room. Now, I could camp out on that for a long time, but let's move on. So, so you're sitting there, probably some of you saying, okay, that's all great, preacher, but you're, you're, you're really talking in circles. What I really want to know is, which rules do I have to follow and which rules, which rules do I not? Isn't that what we came here to discern? Which, which rules are still applying to my life and which ones uh, can we just disregard? Well, with respect, that attitude is the problem. That attitude is the problem. When Jesus was here in the flesh, everyone was shocked at how he related to the scribes and Pharisees. Now, it's hard for us to get this because we've grown up thinking of them as the bad guys. But if you'd grown up in first century Israel, 
if you're like most of us, if you're, if you're the kind of person who loves people who are patriotic and ethical and, and religious and, and solid, then you would have admired the scribes and Pharisees more than anybody else. You would have, you would have prayed that if you had a son, he would grow up to be one of them because they were the good guys. They were the ones who, they lived the godliest lives of all. They, they followed God completely. They were devoted to Israel. They were everything you wanted a person to be. And here comes Jesus and says, don't be like them. Don't follow them. They're not the right way. You know why? Because the scribes and the Pharisees had an attitude toward the law that was, okay, Lord, just tell me what I, want to, what I need to obey. What are the rules so I can follow them? They were focused entirely on the letter of the law. Jesus makes this abundantly clear in his teaching. They would, they would find the letter of the law and say, okay, here's what I have to do, and then the rest of my life is mine. And Jesus said, you know, it, it's great that, that you obey these 600 some odd commands, but I don't just want your obedience. I want your heart. I don't just, I don't just want you to avoid killing somebody. I want you to love people, right? I don't just want you to, to not cheat on your wife. I want you to be mentally and emotionally faithful as well. Jesus said, it's not about just the letter of the law. So let me, let me make an analogy that brings this home for all of us who've ever been married or want to be married. Uh, let's say a guy gets married, and on his wedding day, after the ceremony's over, uh, he says to his young bride, okay, let's get a few things straight. I need to know what's required of me. So uh, let's get this down on paper. How many times or how often do you need me to hear, you need to hear me say I love you? Is that a birthdays and anniversary kind of thing, or is it once a month? Um, do I need to suck it up and do it once a day? Just let me know. Uh, how often are you going to need some kind of, you know, no strings attacks, uh, attached affection? You know, how many times do I have to hug you a day? Is that, you know, once or twice? Just when I get home at night, is that enough? Um, how long every day do I need to listen to you talk? Will 30 minutes be enough? And, and can I be doing other things, or do I have to have my eyes right on you at all times? Because, you know, just let me know because I need to get this down because I need to know what I need to And by the way, I've got a busy schedule. I've, I've got hunting and fishing and golfing and going to football games and I got, I got all kinds of stuff to do. So um, how often can I be out of the house without you throwing a hissy fit? I need to know right now. Is it five nights a week? Is it three? Is it two? I need, this, I need to know this. What's expected of me? Now, how is that relationship going to go? Well, it's going to go terrible because that's not a relationship. That's a transaction. That's a business deal. But isn't that how a lot of us relate to God? Or just tell me, okay, I need to be at church on Sundays? Okay, I can do that. I can block off a couple of hours every week, and I can go, and I can sit, and I can do my part. Oh, you want me to give an offering? Okay, well, 10%? Well, should that be gross or the net before taxes? Just let me know. I need to know. Okay, so I can't say these words, and I can't do these things. Okay, I can probably handle that. Yeah, okay, that's good. So I'll give you that, and then the rest is mine. That's, that's the way a lot of us relate to God. As long as I've done this stuff, I'm good with God. But that's not a relationship. So just to be totally transparent, when, when Carrie and I got married, it, was, it took a while for me to realize what it meant to love her because it took me a while to realize that um, she really needed our house to be clean. Okay. Now, I, I grew up in a home where my mom wanted me to pick up my stuff, but if I didn't pick it up, she'd pick it up. 
And that's just the way things went. Every once in a while, okay, Jeffrey, you got to get down and get that stuff picked. Okay, I'll do it, Mom. But Carrie grew up in a house where this is not a lie. Her dad, if you left anything out for longer than an hour, it went in the trash. So she was not used to clutter. Now, my wife is very, very sweet, and she just does not lose her temper, never yells, never, and just wouldn't do that. And yet, I can see it in her eyes. The little eye starts to twitch a little bit. And there's, there's a stack of coffee cups on the end table, maybe a, two or three pairs of shoes down there. Uh, you know, my daughter's come home, and all her stuff's laid out in one corner. And I'll say, um, kids, we need to pick up around here. Your mom's about to lose it. And I've learned that's what love is. See, when I got married, I thought love was flowers and, and, and notes and, and grand romantic gestures. And the interesting thing is, you know, if I were to stand up in front of the whole church and talk about what a beautiful and virtuous and, and intelligent woman my wife is, we'd go home that day and she'd say, thank you, don't ever do that again. Because it would embarrass her. That's not what she wants. You know, if she was completely honest, she'd say, just pick up the dang house, you know, just help me. And, and so I learned, I had to learn that. I had to learn this is what love looks like. It's not what I wanted it to be, but it is what is true. I think all of you who've ever been married know that that's true. It took you a while when you first got married to go, that's what he wants, that's what he expects. Well, yeah. So all of that to say, all of that to say, if we want a relationship with God, we don't just look at, okay, Lord, how often do I have to do this? Okay, how much do I have to give over here? We start to ask, what is God's heart? What, who is God really? And if I want to live in a way that pleases Him, if I want to live in a way where I'm walking alongside Him, these are the things I will do. These are the things I will, and if I do those things, I'll experience some great things. I'll experience myself becoming more like Him. So, if I can be real honest, can we just admit our desire to know the rules is often really a desire to control God? Just like that fictional husband who just wanted to know what's required of me, he just wanted to keep his wife off his back. He didn't really love her. If we love God, we'll get to know Him. And how do we get to know Him? Through His Word. John Calvin, the old theologian from quite a while ago, the Reformation days, said that you can divide the Old Testament laws into three categories. Some of you may have heard this. So the first category are civil laws. Civil laws, in other words, the laws that a nation needs in order to function. Remember, the covenant was given when the people of Israel were just a nomadic band, former slaves, and now they're supposed to form a new nation. So the civil laws in the Old Testament are sort of like the constitution of a new country. And these are laws that have to do with how you should treat people, how, how certain uh, offenses should be dealt with. And there's, there's a lot of capital punishment. There's a lot of retribution. There's a lot of eye for an eye. But all of that is intended to keep Israel a law and order state, a, a nation where things happen in a just way. But we don't follow those anymore because there is no more nation like Israel anymore. Even Israel today in the Middle East, is not like Israel in the Old Testament. God doesn't have a covenant with modern Israel. There's not a son of David sitting on the throne. Old Testament Israel was unique. It was the only true theocracy in world history. A nation that was governed by God. 
And we know that these laws don't apply. Let me prove it to you. So Leviticus 18, one of the laws in Leviticus 18 tells us that uh, in case of incest, the, the person guilty of it should be executed, put to death. That is a civil law. But then we get to the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 5. And Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. And he tells them, I happen to know there's a man in your church that is sleeping with his stepmother. And y'all aren't doing anything about it. You know what I'm talking about? You've read 1 Corinthians 5. What does he say? Does he say, report him to the authority so he'll go to jail? No. Does he say, take him out and stone him to death? No. He says, put him out of the church. Because there's no more civil law anymore. The, the people of Corinth didn't live in a nation. They lived in a secular nation, just like ours, just like every other nation on earth today. It's governed by human beings, not by God. And so the concern now is not the nation. The concern is the church, the people of God, and how they relate to one another and how they relate to the world. So those are the civil laws. In the Old Testament, they no longer apply to us. Then there are ceremonial laws. These are laws that have to do with approaching God and being in His presence. They're the cleanliness rules. They're the dietary laws. They're the, the sacrifices, the festivals. We don't follow those anymore. They no longer apply to us. Uh, we don't, we're no longer required to circumcise our sons when they're born. That's not a law that, that binds us anymore. We're no longer required to keep the seventh day holy. And yet these laws still teach us something about God's character, and they're still important for us to know. For instance, we do worship on Sundays. That started after the resurrection of Jesus, and Christians started getting together to celebrate his resurrection, and, and a lot of them said, you know, let's, let's go ahead and rest on this day too because it's a good idea. God required that of Israel because he knew that people need rest once a week. So let's do that. And yet it's not something that binds us. If, if you happen to... Uh, you know, jog from here to your car in the parking lot after church one Sunday, you haven't defiled yourself in the face of God. We're not, we're not bound by that kind of stuff anymore. So the civil laws and ceremonial laws, we don't have to follow. But then third, there are moral laws. And those are laws that show us how to be a good person. They're about how we relate to one another and how we relate to God. Uh, Exodus 20.15, the Eighth Commandment says, you shall not steal. This is a perfect example. In the New Testament, it's affirmed. In the New Testament, Ephesians 4.28 says, Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Notice that when Paul gets to this hundreds of years later, he doesn't say, well, as long as you don't steal, everything's okay. He says, the whole purpose for the command is, instead of taking from somebody else, work hard enough that you can afford to give. You can bless others instead of taking from them. And so you see, when the New Testament comments on the Old Testament, it always shows you, here's what God really meant. Here's the heart of God. Here's what God is about. Here's the kind of person God wants you to be. So instead of asking, do I still need to follow this law? Again, to, to take that marriage analogy, ask yourself, what is the heart of God on this? And Jesus gave us, the quickest summary for the heart of God when he said the most important commandment is, there's two, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And instead of debating and, and, and quibbling over uh, uh, how the laws of the Old and New Testament should be applied, what we should get down to is, okay, Lord, in my situation right now, 
what could I do that would truly show you love? Lord, in my situation right now, how can I treat this person that shows that I'm truly loving my neighbor? And if that's your goal, if that's your motive, then you're going to grow in righteousness. You're going to grow in joy. And yes, there will be times where you'll wonder, okay, have I done the right thing or not? There will be times where you and I might disagree over what a particular command means. But as long as we both are aiming at, let's love the Lord, let's love our neighbor, let's do our best, then we know we're going to grow toward righteousness. We're going to grow towards joy. We're going to grow towards uh, drawing people into his kingdom. And that is the whole point. So, I don't know if I've answered the question or not, but that's the best I've got. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I'm so grateful that you are, you are the one that makes us worthy to stand in the presence of God. Lord, you are the one who makes us worthy to come into your presence and, uh, and experience your love and forgiveness. Lord, it's because you lived out the law perfectly in a way that none of us were able to do. And so when you died for our sins, you transferred your righteousness to us. So Lord, we get to walk into the throne room as if we're sons and daughters. We're justified by you. And so we're grateful for that. Help us, Lord, to have the right mindset about your word. Help us to study it and never stop learning from it. I pray, Lord, that we would not get caught up in legalism and settle for just uh, arguing and debating over individual laws, but instead, Lord, let us always, always be focused on loving you and loving our neighbor as you've commanded us. Lord, make us the kind of church that, that does that and that teaches others how to live as well. For it's in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, we pray. Amen.